Well, this morning we're continuing. Oh, I've already got a Bible up here. Now I have two. This morning we're continuing uh, in the same passage from Joel chapter 2. Now, uh, the prophet Joel is one of the minor prophets, one of the 12, uh, we say. And uh, he, he prophesies to us about the day of the Lord. And in chapter 1, actually through chapter 1 to chapter 2 and a half, we came across the fact that he was saying, well, there are all of these terrible things that have happened in the land. And these are like the day of the Lord, the day when God comes to judge his people, to judge the world, to make right the things that have gone wrong. It's, it's a kind of climactic sort of event, not just an everyday event. And in this case, Joel says there was an invasion of locusts into the land. They ate everything. He says, this is God saying something to you when that happens. And then he uh, says there is a terrible drought. Wow, that doesn't sound familiar at all. And God is saying something to you in the midst of the drought. And then he says, an army is coming, and God is saying something to you through the coming army. What's he saying? He's saying, repent. Repent. Now, uh, there are a lot of things maybe that we could say about uh, the state of our country, the state of the world, all sorts of different things. I'm not going to touch on most of those. And the reason is because uh, people have been saying with confidence for the last 2,000 years that this is happening, therefore Jesus is, uh, he's, we're in the last days and Jesus is about to return and all this stuff. Let me tell you, that is always true. It is always true. In every day, in every moment since Jesus came, he has always been about to come back. And the only thing that we can do wrong in our expectation is to write a date on the calendar. Uh, it's popular to do that because we like certainty, don't we? But it's not what God called us to do. He called us to live every day like Jesus is coming back. So what I want to do instead is say, how do we live our daily lives in light of the fact that God comes to judge the world and judge his people? And repentance is the right sort of approach. What does true repentance look like? That's what these verses that we heard this morning are all about. So first, we, we said repentance isn't an outward show, but an inward reality, characterized by placing your trust completely in God, saying, I was wrong, God was right. And now the only one who can go about fixing everything that's gone wrong here is God himself. And let me tell you, he's going to call you to cooperate in one way or another. But it's God's actions that are primary. Otherwise, Jesus doesn't have to die on the cross. If we can make our wrongs right on our own, then Jesus made a mistake by dying on the cross, by taking our sin upon himself. So first comes God, and second comes what we do. We repent not with an outward show, but an inward reality. God, I am sorry, and I'm going to trust you for whatever comes next. Whatever I need to do, whatever consequences are going to come. Repentance is ridding ourselves of every idol, ranging from the abstract and, and the metaphorical idols. I can be good enough on my own. That's an idol that we worship. 
to, I have this other God who promises to make it right. Get rid of every idol and trust God alone. Uh, we answered another question. How can we possibly place ourselves fully in God's hands? Because he's the one who's angry. He's the judge. It's a scary thing when you have to go in front of a judge, isn't it? If you uh, are dealing with a legal issue, you want to solve your legal issue before you get to the judge, because that's where you still have control. Once it goes to the judge and jury, your fate is in someone else's hands. How can we possibly place ourselves fully in the judge's hands? We can do this by remembering that God is characterized by graciousness and by compassion. That he is slow to anger and abounding in love. And I think that slow to anger thing doesn't just mean it takes him a long time to get angry. It means that his anger does not control him. We know what that's like, don't we? Anger always wants to take us over and tell us what to do. I have this conversation with my kids as they're growing up, and they get angry, and no one gets angry like children, right? Now, my children have never done anything like this, but have you ever, you ever been at the grocery store or someplace where it was someone else's children, and, and they're in the checkout line, and they say, oh, can I have that candy? And mom and dad say, no, you can't have that good candy, because they're good parents, and they're trying to give their kids healthy sorts of things, and then the kids get angry, and oh, do they get angry. And they're jumping up and down and they're throwing themselves on the ground. They're beating their fists and kicking their legs. That's what anger does for human beings. But that's not how God gets angry. He is slow to anger. See, we can't command God to accept our repentance because he is God. He is the judge, not the other way around. But he's still trustworthy. We remembered the story because you know, maybe if, if it's just words, it, that's not enough. We, we can't believe it. We can't trust it. But we remembered the story of Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. Do you, do you remember from last week? We said the people of Israel come out of Egypt. They came to Mount Sinai. Moses went up and he got the Ten Commandments, right? And that was the, that was the symbol of God's covenant with his people. And when Moses came down the hill, do you remember what he found? There's like some sort of orgy, sorry if there are children in here, and there were people worshiping a golden calf. It took him like half a day, or it took him a few days to decide God's not trustworthy. And they made their own God and worshiped him and did whatever in the world they wanted to do. And how did God respond? Well, we know how Moses responded. Moses picked up the Ten Commandments and he threw them and they broke. And isn't there some, symbol some significance to that? The covenant seemed broken. God will reject us because look what we've done. He'll be so angry. Moses was angry. And Moses got up to the top of the mountain. He had to explain to God how he broke the tablets that God gave to him. And what did God do? Well, he wrote new tablets. He said, I'm going to make that new covenant. And then he said, he passed in front of Moses and he said, The Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate slow to anger, and abounding in love. Do you think it's an accident that those are exactly the words Joel repeats for us? He wants us to know there is nothing we can do 
that will so break our relationship with God that God will not take us back. As we were uh, praying our prayer of confession and hearing the assurance of pardon, you know, I need that every week, first of all, let me tell you. Because there's something powerful about among God's people confessing my sin, doing it together, reminding that I, or being reminded I'm not the only one who sins, and receiving that assurance of, of pardon. And I was remembering the story. This is one of the reasons why you should go to Cal's How to Study the Bible class. This is one of the reasons we're in the Lifetime Reading Project with our Bibles. Because I remembered that story that I've read over and over and over again. I know you've read it over and over and over again, too. The story of the prodigal son, remember? And the the son goes out. He wastes his inheritance. he, He squanders everything. He dishonors and shames his father and his family. And he comes back and he says, I'm going to tell my dad uh, that I'm not worthy to be, you know, come back as his son, but just make me a day laborer in your house. And you remember, he's almost home and he crests the hill and his father sees him. What does that tell you about his father? That he was looking for him. And then what does dad do? Dad, you know, he's, they wore different kinds of clothes back then. You might remember they wore these, these kind of like long cloaks. I, I don't know exactly what we call all of these things. And you can't run in them. So it, it, they're a little bit like a dress. Ladies, can you run well in a long dress? I mean, you're liable to trip and fall right on your face. So if you want to run, what you got to do is you got to grab your your clothing, you got to tie it up like a diaper and start running. And you know who didn't do that? Old men. You know why they didn't do it? Because it was embarrassing. You looked stupid. But that's what the dad did. Ties up, puts on his diaper, and he runs to his son. And he throws a big party for him. This son of mine was lost, but now he is found. Do you know that's how deeply God loves you? Do you know that that's how he responds to your repentance? He doesn't say, well, I guess you can come back. He says, we're having a party. You've come home. We can trust God, even though he's the judge, because he is slow to anger. He is gracious and compassionate. He is abounding in love. But there are two things we didn't get to last week. Now, the first one, I think, is is a really difficult one. The first question, uh, or really the third question that we're answering here, but the first one we're getting to today is who needs to repent? Who needs to repent? Now, maybe, uh, maybe you're listening to that question. You think, well, that's obvious. Like, that's something we learn in Sunday school. Everyone needs to repent. But that, that's not exactly what I mean when I say, who needs to repent? It's more like how many should repent at any given time for one sin. How many should repent? Let me tell you why. Here's what we read in Joel chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. It says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. 
Bring together the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Now I want to focus on two particular people who are called to gather to repent. First, I want to talk about the bride and the bridegroom. Now when it says, uh, let the bridegroom leave his chamber, where did we go? Bridegroom, leave his room, the bride, her chamber. It means kind of what you think it means, if you stop and think about it. See, in ancient Israel, when you got married, there were provisions in the law that said, the first year of your marriage, you, don't, you are exempt from military service. Your job is just to be married in that first year, just to enjoy your bride, to enjoy your groom, to get to know each other, to love each other, to celebrate your coming together. But when it comes time to repent, no, that's more important. That's the most significant thing. Whatever you're doing, whatever you are about, if there is a need for repentance, you need to be there. And you need to do it. You can't put it off. You can't wait the year. You might be able, if, if the country is invaded and there are foreign soldiers everywhere and they're spoiling the land and they're killing people, you are exempt from military service. If you have sinned and you need to repent, you need to do it now. It's a big deal. God's taking it seriously, isn't he? But see, it's not just the urgency of everyone right now needs to repent. It's also really, literally, everyone. Did you catch where it said, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the children, even those nursing at the breast? What can a baby nursing at the breast possibly have to repent for? This is what I think it's, it's getting at. I think when it talks about even those nursing at the breast, they share in the guilt of their community. They share in the guilt of their community. Could God really mean that even if you didn't commit the sin, you might share in the guilt? Absolutely. Absolutely. And to prove it, let me take you back to the book of Joshua. After the defeat of Jericho, the people of Israel moved deeper into the land to complete the conquest and take up residence of the new home God has promised them. They come to the people of Ai, a small people with little military power. As a matter of fact, the scouts that went out said, don't send the whole army, just send a couple of thousand people. This is going to be the easiest battle we ever fought. And somehow, after the amazing display at Jericho, and seemingly in the face of all of God's promises to his people, the army of Israel lost to this tiny little nation. Let me read the story to you from Joshua 7. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, that's what they played after the victory, by the way, not after the defeat. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? 
If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? Hear what Josh was saying? God, why did you abandon us? And this is how the Lord responded. It's a tough one. The Lord said to Joshua, Stand up! What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. And that is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. So to sum up, Joshua says, God, why did you let us down? God said, who do you think you are and who do you think you're dealing with? I don't let people down. The fault lies with you. Someone has sinned. Israel has sinned. Uh, If, just a little background, when God sent everyone into Jericho, he said, don't take any plunder. Don't take any spoil. That city's devoted to destruction. Someone broke God's command. So picking up the story again in verse 19, Joshua said to Achan, who is selected by Lot, they go through this long process, they draw lots, and this clan is taken, and this family, and so on and so on, until finally they get down to Achan. And Joshua said, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites, and spread them out before the Lord. Israel went to battle against Ai. They were defeated, and almost 40 people died, it says, for one man's sin. Does that seem fair? Too bad. Let me tell you first, too bad. Not because I think, oh yeah, that's totally fair, because I I completely get it, but because our conscience needs to bow before God. God doesn't bow before our conscience. We don't get to make the call and say, God, this is what's good, so you better get on board. God's the creator. He is the maker of all things. Are we going to instruct him? Do you remember how that worked out for Job? I love that passage. Remember we, we had that song that was up here, Where Were You? Where were you the day that I spoke and called the heavens and earth into being? He asked those questions for four chapters of Job. Can you do this? Do you have the wisdom to ordain that? Did you put the sun in its place? Do you make it rise? when it's supposed to rise? Did you order the seasons? Folks, do 
Do you ever look out at the world that we live in and think, this is a pretty spectacular place? It's amazing how everything works together in this incredible balance. Think about it. We've got these ecosystems everywhere, right? And they're all like, if you go out into the ocean, like things, think of the food chain. You have the plankton, and then the stuff that eats the plankton, and the stuff that eats the stuff that eats the plankton, and the stuff that eats the stuff that eats the stuff that eats the, you know, the, the plankton, and so on and so forth. And there's this huge list of things. It's all so interconnected. It's like the world's most giant puzzle with no pictures on it anywhere that we could make any sense of, and God knows where each bit fits. So I think that, first of all, the answer is, is, yeah, more or less, too bad. He's God, and we're not. And he is good, and we're trying really hard. And we're not always going to understand. I think that's so important to bring to this. That humility that comes from there are going to be places where God says, this is good, and I'm going to say why it doesn't look good, and God will say, who's God here? And he doesn't mean it in a diminutive sort of sense, like, just do what I say. He means it in a literal, like, I'm God. Do you expect to understand everything that I do? Everything that I say? Everything that I am? Because if you did, you'd be God. Are you God? No. So there is a sense, I think, in which we would rightly say, whether or not we understand God's God, he gets to make that call. One man sinned. One. It was only Achan, and yet all of Israel suffered. All of Israel needed to repent. In the book of Joel, those newborn babies weren't part of those unfaithful generations, and yet they were part of that act of repentance that the whole nation did. So we need to pay attention to the fact that this is a covenant relationship that we have, not in isolation from everyone else, but that we're all in this together. And I think we can get an idea of how this works from practical experience. See, when I was in high school, I wanted to go see a movie with a non-Christian friend, but it was rated R, and I wasn't allowed to see R-rated movies without special permission from my parents, and I was worried that I wouldn't get that permission. So do you see where this is going? I called my parents to tell them I was going to the movies, but either I neglected to say which movie, or I think what I actually did is I gave them a different movie. I lied. Right, Because that's the surest way to get your way, is to lie. You ever think about how lying is actually an attempt to manipulate everyone around you? There's no white lie, right? We're always manipulating somebody. That was for free. My friend, who wasn't a Christian, but knew that I was a Christian, overheard my phone call. And when I got off the phone, he said something along the lines of, so that's how Christians live. He didn't say, oh, so that's how you, Ian, handle the situation. No, he judged the entire faith by my actions and by my actions alone. Now, on the one hand, he got the wrong impression of how Christians ought to live from me. There's a real sense in which I can say, no, that's not how Christians live. That's how I just lived unchristianly. 
But on the other hand, what other evidence did he have to go on? I was there in front of him. I was the litmus test. And I failed. Brothers and sisters, our sins are not only personal. There is no purely private sin. Sin never, never only impacts the sinner. Sin always impacts a community, and often in ways that we never expected. And the community, at least in some sense, bears the weight of my individual sin, of your individual sin. We know that because God said so, but we also know it because sometimes the community bears that weight because we tolerate sin. We tolerate it. We want to get along with each other nicely, right? And so when we see someone doing something that's sinful, someone that we we love and we have a real relationship with, because I'm not uh, saying we should all go around being each other's nannies all the time, but I'm saying we all have people in our lives that we know we have not only the right but the obligation to speak truth into their lives, and we don't for the sake of keeping the peace. Is that what God wants? I've been listening to the Christianity Today podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which I highly recommend. And it's about the implosion of a network of churches based out of Seattle that were led by Mark Driscoll. This was in the news uh, not quite 10 years ago. You may have heard about it. It didn't happen you know, out of the way somewhere. It happened in the Seattle Times. It happened in the national news media. I I recommend the podcast, uh, by the way, as an example of what church leaders need to look out for in their pastor to hold pastors like me accountable. But also it holds out for us the danger of allowing issues to continue to fester, sin issues to continue to fester because it feels like we're so successful even in spite of them. Because Mars Hill was a huge, growing, influential church until the day it wasn't. I bring this up because the longer sin went unchecked in the pastor's life and leadership at Mars Hill, the worse the eventual failure became. As a church, we cannot tolerate, we cannot allow sinful patterns in the lives of our leaders or even in the lives of our congregants. Now, understand me clearly here. We're not going to become the Gestapo, going around and calling out every single thing that we can. But when there is clearly sin, and we are clearly in a position, either by virtue of God's call in our lives in his church, or by virtue of the relationship that we have with someone, we can't. We can't let it go. We don't want to become people who are really excellent at assigning blame, but rather we want to become people who are really excellent at encouraging one another on toward righteousness, including nipping sin in the bud early on. We can't tolerate sin because sin never stays minor. Jesus went to the cross for even the smallest sin. There is no minor sin 
and sin will finally explode out into the open. No matter how well we hide it, no matter how small it seemed to be, and when that happens, it will compromise the witness, credibility, and integrity, not just of that person, but of the church to Jesus Christ. There is a reason why people say the church is full of hypocrites. There's a reason why people have a bumper sticker that says, God, save me from your people. And it's because of sin in the lives of God's people. See, sin doesn't stay private. And we have to own it, not just not just as individuals, but as a community, and say we are all responsible for this because we tolerated it, because this person belonged to Jesus Christ, hopefully belongs to Jesus Christ. And there's no other way forward. But note something else here. There's a positive corollary. If we bear the weight of of our sin... And if we bear the weight of the sin of our Christian neighbor, note that we also don't bear the weight of our own sin alone. Are you here this morning and you feel crushed by your own personal sin? If you feel that way, you are sitting next to people whom God has given you to bear that weight with you. Because there is no purely private or personal sin. And I think that's pretty encouraging. God has given you these neighbors in the pews, these brothers and sisters in Christ to bear that burden together. And that's why the Bible actually encourages the confession of sin, not only directly to God through prayer, silently in our hearts, but through confession to other Christians, as in James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. This, of course, is not a command to confess to other believers without any discretion at all. Hey, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Great, let me tell you my worst sins. Not telling you to do that. But if you're here, you either already know somebody well and you have some sort of friendship with somebody where there is a level of trust And you know enough about them to say, you know, they really know Jesus. They know that they're a sinner and I'm a sinner. And we can have this conversation. You can start it with me if you want. But you can do it with anybody. Anybody in Jesus Christ. Confess your sins together. Confess our sins to each other. Why? So that we may be healed. Secondly, the community bears the weight of corporate sin, not only because it tolerates sin in its midst, but also because of our unity in Christ. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are family. We are more than family. We are brought into a relationship that the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage points to in its one flesh reality. Paul says, yeah, you've heard that a man should leave his father and mother and and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Paul says that is a great mystery and I'm saying that it is really about Christ and his church. Christ becomes one flesh with his church, which means we become one flesh with each other. The The intimacy in marriage points to the intimacy we are meant to have with Jesus Christ and even with each other. 
So Ephesians 4 then says, speaking of the Christian church, that there is one body, one faith and one baptism. One body. 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 speak of the body of Christ being made up of many members, individual believers, but together we form one body. Our unity in Christ is so strong that, yes, we even share, in some sense, responsibility for the sins of other Christians because God's covenant isn't with me alone personally, but rather is personally for me as I am part of that larger body. So in the first place, Christians bear the weight of the sins of other Christians because sin makes the whole body look bad. And in the second place, Christians bear the weight of the sins of other Christians because that's who we are in Jesus Christ. That's who God has made us. So let's live it. Let's live it. Let's bear each other's burdens. Let's let's go to bat for each other. Let's take responsibility for each other. And you know, we are... We are empowered in Jesus Christ to do this. We're empowered in Jesus Christ to do this. Why? Because our sin is already fully dealt with on the cross. See, if you take on someone else's sin, you will not be more guilty for it. If you repent in solidarity with another brother or sister in Christ. God is not going to say, oh, I'm going to add that to their account. Because Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Sin has no power any longer over God's people. We are set free. And then God sends us out like little Jesuses into the world, saying, start absorbing the sin around you. Start doing it by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, by walking in dark places with people and bringing the light of what God has done there and saying, God will set you free by being willing to be considered by others is broken and dirty so that you can impact the broken and the dirty and help make them clean. Because the gospel changes the whole calculus. I have one more point, but this was a big one. And I'm not going to get to the last point this morning, so we will extend the sermon series out yet another week so we can do the rest that we've got in front of us this morning. But let me just summarize where we've been. See, repentance isn't just about me. Repentance is about this whole host of Christians around me. Repentance is about saying, yeah, you know, I don't distance myself. I don't say, yeah, that church, you know, really kind of stinks. But they're not, they're, they're not real Christians. Sometimes they aren't real Christians, but but we, we don't deflect. Instead, we say, yeah. Yeah, we as Christians, we haven't always done it right. But that's why we've got Jesus. And he cleans us up. He picks us up when we've been hammered by the way to sin. And it seems like we can't go on. He gives us a way forward. There's no fear 
No shame for those who are in Jesus Christ any longer. Jesus has paid it all. So as a church, we take up sin together, encouraging each other, correcting each other, bearing the weight with each other, and by all of that, pointing to God's glory. That's what we're going to talk about next week.